of praise. Uh, we are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, and not just the great themes, uh, some of which we've already seen, of the uh, preeminence of Christ, of the danger of adding anything else to that which we have already received in him. And I would like to, uh, in this series, uh, attend to a number of specific matters relating to God's worship. Last time we considered prayer. What is good prayer? We, we have in the apostles praying uh, tremendous models, illustrations, examples of prayer. Uh, of godly prayer and how we ought to make that both our model and occasionally even use these words as uh, we frame them according to our need. I'm going to talk more generally this evening about what we are doing in worship and why and how and even when. A couple larger matters and I'll begin this evening from Colossians chapter 3 reading from verse 12 down to the end of the section in verse 17. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more briefly. Uh, our Father in heaven, it is our desire to please you and to learn your way. And even as you have appointed us to be your priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you only through Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would instruct this priesthood that we should be faithful and wise in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have to tell you that worship has become a controversial topic in some quarters in our time and disturbing the church and even separating Christians from one another who otherwise hold virtually the same understanding of the Christian faith. People have strong opinions and opinions about how the church ought to worship on the Lord's Day in particular is at the forefront of these battles. I fear that many times people's opinions have more to do with their preferences than biblical conviction. I remember when Mark Ross was down visiting some of our churches down in Mexico, uh, speaking at our seminary in Tampico, uh, some of the uh, people were complaining about uh, some of the changes that had happened in a couple of the congregations. One of the elders in particular was walking out with him was decrying the liberalism that was infiltrating the Spanish church. Dr. Ross, of course, very, very concerned to hear that, uh, said, uh, what is it that we're, what is it you're experiencing? Is it Boltman or Tillich or what, what, what is it? He said, no, 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 guitars. That was, that was supposed to be funny. Liberalism in the church, 
Guitars. Guitars. Oh, sorry. Git guitars. I'm sorry. In the South, it's like a four-syllable word, and I said it pretty fast with a Spanish accent. Liberalismo in the church. Boltman, Tillich, uh, guitars. Ew, he says. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, thankfully, that was the liberalism they were concerned about. Um, I fear, as I say, that a lot of it has to do with preference, um, and uh, others perhaps say it doesn't matter how we worship as long as it's meaningful to us. I was preparing for worship some time ago. Somebody asked me what I was doing. I explained preparing, preparing our worship, and he said, that's great. There's so many ways to worship. <clears throat> I said, yeah, no, okay. Uh, so, all right. Um, to a far greater degree than most Christians, probably even you, realize our corporate spiritual health, vitality, and fruitfulness depend heavily on our gathered worship. And we Christians will be, to a significant degree, what our worship makes us to be. Worship shapes in a deep and permanent way our understanding of reality, our worldview, our view of God, our view of sin, of salvation, of the world, of his word, of our eternal destiny. Worship also shapes our character, expresses and directs our desires and longings, strengthens or, alas, weakens our proper loves, forms them, animates them, strengthens them, and preserves them. Our corporate worship actually forms our very selves in important ways. At least worship ought to do that. I would say that it always does that, for better or for worse. But worship is a great instrument or engine in Christian discipleship. It shapes the Christian mind. It directs the Christian heart and the Christian life, therefore. And there have always been reasons for Christians to care deeply about worship, our corporate worship together, especially on the Lord's Day. But I think now more than ever, uh, David considered worship more precious and more important than life itself. I'd rather have one day in that courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere, he said. Also, again and again in the Bible, the church's worship is the measure of the church's spiritual state because corrupt or formal worship, that is say even if it was going on properly, uh, if it was just formal, was always a sure sign of the church's unbelief and disobedience, which God frequently pointed out to them. And the corruption of worship was as much the cause as the result of the creeping unbelief among God's people. They wanted something that they liked better so often. Our worship is an unmistakable marker of our spiritual health or malaise. It's one of our faith's vital signs. We should care about it chiefly because we by it bring glory to God in a public way. And secondly, because we are concerned about our own spiritual health and fruitfulness, which depends upon that. So, for these and many other reasons, I want you to have informed biblical convictions about worship. I remember being at a bookshop at RTS. I was buying a, this uh, thick book from Puritan John Cotton on, on worship. And uh, my, my friend, who used to trade bonds with me, Steve Halverson, uh, he, uh, he said, you know, why are you buying that book? You're never going to enjoy worship again. 
Uh, you think about it too much, you're only going to be unhappy in what's actually going on, in other words, is what he was saying, because we both went to the same church and I knew what he meant. Uh, I'm, I'm going to branch out from this passage to consider some big matters, some big questions people have. In other words, big warning sign. This is not an expository sermon on the passage I read. I will refer to that passage and several other passages in Colossians. But here is where I start by asking the big questions with you. What, how, and when? What, how, and when for worship? First, what? What are we to do? It's important to note right off that worship is not a spectator sport. What are you doing looking at me? Worship is not a spectator sport. The Bible says that you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3. That means that you priests are here to worship, not as passive observers, but active priestly participants. And if you think biblically about public worship, you must think about what you are offering to God. What are these spiritual sacrifices the Bible describes that we are to bring to God? You want to be a faithful priest, I hope, uh, not like those corrupt priests of old who did all kinds of things that God had never commanded. What are these things which God has called for you to offer? I'm going to mention four things explicitly given for us to do when we come together for worship. There is a very broad, broad idea of worship in the Bible considered elsewhere. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, I, I'm considering when we come together, what is it that we are supposed to be doing? That is to say, what is that you priests in particular are supposed to be offering by way of your spiritual sacrifice? Well, the first is found here in the passage I read to you in verse 16. Um, my, uh, under what, subpoint one, singing of psalms with grace in the heart. Singing of psalms with grace in the heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In a similar passage, Paul writes about what's appropriate in explicitly public worship to the Corinthians, how things which are proper and good elsewhere at other times, like speaking in tongues where there's no interpreter, uh, those things are not appropriate for God's worship. And he goes on to explain what is appropriate, and he says, wait, when you, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm. Uh, Praise is one of these spiritual sacrifices that you, priests, are to offer to God. Hebrews 13, 15, therefore, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips, giving thanks to his name. Um, it's not just, of course, for God, the passage reminds us, but also for each other. In fact, have you ever recognized just how many of those inspired psalms are directed not primarily toward God, but toward one another. Did you notice that? The passage says, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms. So when we sang Psalm 1 this morning, how blessed the man who does not walk where wicked men would guide his feet, right? Nor stands in passive sinful men or sits upon the sorter's feet. Jehovah's law is his delight, his meditation day and night. It's, it's an exhortation. One to another. 
We are, in the Apostles' words, in these things, teaching and admonishing each other in psalms, because that's one of the things that priests have to do. You know, that was one of the things they were commissioned to do right from the days of Moses. The priests of that day not only offered sacrifices, as you do, they also had to teach the law, as you are doing as well. Well, I I will leave aside entirely today the more difficult question of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What is it that we are to be singing? Can anything else be sung in worship besides that which is here referred to as the word of Christ? which could be the word that Christ speaks or the word about Christ. Certainly, David's psalms are both. Um, But the point is, we are to be singing them and to do so with grace in the heart. Um, You are the ones who offer that sacrifice of praise. Now, um, when I was a new Christian, I went to this church in Charlotte for some months when I first got there, I had a few friends there. It was a great singing congregation, like this in so many ways. You know, people really sang. It was joyful. Uh, there were some melodies and harmonies going on. I, I just loved to be in the worship of the people there. It was so inspiring and encouraging to be joined together with such praise. I hope you feel the same way in our congregation, too. I, I do. I love to hear the praise of God all together. It thrills my heart. Well, Something interesting happened. I uh, stopped going to that church. They moved to a different location. It was, I don't know, several months, maybe a year later, I thought, I'm going to go back and visit, visit my friends there. And they had changed their worship. They had built a large new building. And what they sang changed entirely. I'm not here to complain about old versus new music or any such thing. Simply to say, what they sang did change entirely. But the biggest change I noticed was that now the worship was all going on up front. Uh, That is to say that one of the things that they had changed was that they put a band band up there where there was not one before. And uh, uh, they had some singers, which were obviously into it. But, But what I couldn't help noticing was that the congregation I used to sing with so joyfully, they were now hands in pockets uh, singing along. It was a totally different experience. I don't know if anybody else in that church noticed it, but I sure noticed it. And of course, not having been, not having been in the transition, worship had gone from the people to the performer. No, no. That's a big no, no. Uh, You are those who are to sing with grace in your heart, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. It is not a performance that is going on here. You are the worshiper. God is the audience, and you sing praise to him. Occasionally, as I say, you are teaching and admonishing one another, but still, that is your job as as priests. Perhaps you never thought of it that way, but it is uh, what you are called to do. Second, we are told in the word that we should be offering the sacrifice of our prayers with supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Um, Here it is, chapter 4, verse 2. All the words here in plural, this to be read in the congregation, as we'll we'll see. Uh, A a corporate charge to pray, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, 
to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in change, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, and so forth. Similarly, Paul gives Timothy instructions explicitly for the gathered worship of the saints in his first letter to Timothy. He begins, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life, and so forth, in all godliness and reverence, and so forth here, uh, good and acceptable um, this is to be done, uh, as we read in various places, earnestly and intelligently, according to the will of God in a known tongue. As a matter of fact, in the ordinary practice of God's people, it is to be not just uh, one person praying, but even if one person prays, others would be adding their amen at the end, meaning so be it. That is to say, even if one person happens to be the one speaking, this is not merely a performance. We also are engaging in the prayer, and we wholeheartedly concur. Uh, the British hear, hear, maybe uh, a kind of uh, uh, modern translation. So be it. We agree. This is our concerted prayer. What's, what a signature is to a document, the amen is to corporate prayer. And rather than an occasional or spontaneous amen here or there, um, Every instance that I can find in the Bible anyway is that all the people said amen at the conclusion actually of prayer or praise. Um, and, uh, and so it is that God has called us to offer these prayers. Picture in Revelation of the bowls of incense being offered as a sacrifice, which are the prayers of the saints. Other references to the priestly were, uh, offering of prayers. Your priests, what do priests do? Priests pray, priests priest intercede, and sure enough. Uh, finally, the re uh, excuse me, thirdly, the reading, preaching, and I'll say heartfelt hearing of God's word. The reading, preaching, and heartfelt hearing of God's word. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 16, now when this uh, epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from, the Laodice from Laodicea and, and so forth. By the way, um, just one of these things that shows the apostles very conscious of the inspiration of his own writings compared to what some people object. Uh, only the scripture, the word of God, was to be read in the uh, meeting, no matter what was sung. Only the word of God was read, that's for sure. And here it is, the epistle is to be read. Well... Uh, similarly, Paul writes to 1 Timothy, uh, man of God, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, and so forth. And it's not just that the word should go forth, but that it should also be likewise received as it ought to be. You do not desire sacrifice, wrote David, else would I give it, nor delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, O priests, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. We are to offer then the sacrifices of broken and contrite hearts, or as we say, take God's word to heart. This is your offering to the Lord. Uh, we don't have to make the message relevant. 
it is relevant. God has made it extremely relevant. It's as relevant as it could possibly be, a matter of life and death. The word can deliver us from the wrath of God, bring us to the only Savior, build us up in our holy faith, and give us an inheritance among the saints. Is there anything more relevant to the world than that? I don't know what it could be. It puts in perspective all the other topics and traditions that clutter up the worship of God. What can they do for you? The word, Paul says, that is breathed out by God himself in the Spirit is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Well, that supernatural divine power in the word is to be matched by your heartfelt reception of it, that you would be able to offer the sacrifice that God really desired all this time. Not those bulls and goats, David says. You don't really care about those. The sacrifice that you care about is a broken and contrite heart, or in Isaiah, a heart that trembles at your word. That is a proper sacrifice for a new covenant priest like you. Fourth, I'll mention um, the Lord's Supper as well. When you come together in one place, uh, Paul complains, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Because of your divisions. Each of you takes his own supper and so forth. The point is, when you come together, it's not to be stuffing your faces or each one going ahead with your divisions against one another. No, no, no. You come together to eat the Lord's Supper, this regular weekly practice of the church uh, that uh, they seems that they had whenever they came together. I, I'm not a stickler on, on timing, uh, but it does seem like, like that. When you come together, says the apostle, or Acts chapter 20 on the first day of the week, when the apostles came together to break bread, does probably mean communion, the Lord's table uh, is that promise of God in the gospel, in the word, that is made visible to make Christ visible in the way that he has appointed, in his flesh and in his blood. And a promise of divine power attends it. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? Paul writes to the Corinthians. He reprimands the Corinthians. Hey, you are not coming together for the better. I do not praise you. The implication is you should be coming together for the better. Well, these are the four things that are certainly mentioned and ought to be emphasized, things that have divine sanction and power. And when these things are done in a proper spirit, worship takes place. This is the what. You might ask me, aren't there any other things that should be done in worship? Um, Well, uh, we think... uh, Occasionally, besides a baptism, we might have vows or a day of worship with solemn fasts or feasts of thanksgiving, which we read about from time to time in the, in the Bible among the people of God. I'm not going to be elaborating on those more occasional things today, but these are things that God has promised also to reward and bless, which are done in the assembly. But uh, I'm trying to give you the things we are to concentrate on week by week. What about other things, you ask? I mean, is there anything else? Can anything else be done? I mean, what about dancing? Psalm 149, let them praise his name with the dance, for example. Any of y'all want to dance? Shall we dance? Um, well, uh, okay, let them praise his name with the dance. Uh, I, I mentioned this as one of many things, hopefully to get your attention, make you smile a little bit. But, you know, one of many things was, this, hey, praise the Lord with the dance. I mean, come on. Uh, Psalm 149 
David, right? What, what, are, we gonna, what are we gonna make about this? Uh, well, I, I just think before we just say, well, there, there it is, God likes it, so here we should do it, we might need to ask, is this intended to describe the public worship of God at the time in the temple? Is it now a dance troupe in the temple? Is that what we're taking here? Or individual dancing? Is, is that how we are to read it? Or is this for the new covenant time, perhaps? Um, or is it rather about praising the Lord at all times and all places? I mean, just keep on reading in Psalm 149. It goes on, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Did you bring beds? Should people be bringing beds to the temple? It says sing aloud on their beds. Maybe people want, maybe we should have beds in church. Next verse, let the high praise of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Beloved, have you forgotten your sword today? No, pastor. All right, well, um, okay. Uh, the, the, the point is uh, what, may be, what may be very pro- fine and appropriate as we are to praise God everywhere at all times in all of our life Uh, may not be appropriate for the assembly. Paul himself makes this distinction very clearly, not so much here, but in 1 Corinthians, uh, we need to recognize that uh, God has appointed certain things for us when we come together, and that we ought to aim to do these things, in particular as his priests, no more, no less. The Bible does have a variety of things, uh, um, a variety of, of things in his word, like calls to worship, it contains songs, an illustration of singing. It contains prayers and examples of prayer. The scriptures are repeatedly commanded to be read and preached and heeded by the people. The Lord's Supper to be celebrated. We have these blessings and these benedictions that typically also in, in the letter like we read in this one. Well, worship is to be participatory in all these things. That is to say, we are then listening to God's word with the attention that the Almighty deserves, or speaking to the Lord with reverence, or singing to him with gratitude and joy, or participating in the feast that he has spread with thanksgiving and discerning ourselves as necessary. The worship is not a spectator sport. This is the what of what, not what I'm doing, but what you are doing every Sunday. That means that there's also, by the way, uh, an important spiritual component I've tried to illustrate in each of these things. It's not enough that it should be done outwardly in a formal way. And um, uh, I, I took a little quote from Jim, Jim Boyce from his, from his sermon on John 15. As a matter of fact, that I didn't use any of it for this morning, but I thought this kind of actually does fit for this evening, although he wasn't talking about worship at all in the corporate sense. But, he, but, but Boyce says... What happens when we go about lopping off unscriptural practices without first being drawn closer to God in true devotion is that we imagine ourselves to be quite saintly when actually we are not. We begin to look down on others who have not made the same denials. We consider them to be worldly and ourselves spiritual. Moreover, having eliminated these elements without first having our lives filled with Christ, we discover that we have a vacuum within and that it is easy for something else, not at all Christian, to fill it. He's talking about a number of legalistic practices that uh, we should not be giving heed 
to not adding or taking away. We can apply the same to worship. Basically, the easy thing is for us to check the boxes of those things which are outwardly done. The Lord looks upon the heart, and we need to recognize that the heart of worship is the matter of the heart, and therefore, as the priests, it can't be a formal worship. It needs to be as we describe. That's the what. I would like to discuss a few more things of the nuts and bolts, though, moving along the how, the order of, order of worship. How? How are we to do all these things when we come together? Um, God does not specify <coughs> a sequence for these things that we are supposed to do. He has left much of that, even actually in the days of Moses, uh, where so much is specified, uh, in so many ways, the order of things is, is left open. He's left that to us, and certainly in the, in the church, we are commanded, 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. <laughs> Check. As Presbyterian church, we certainly got that down. It's decently and it's in order. But there is a general order of things in the Bible, and that order of things in the Bible, is my point, is reflected in our order of worship here at Redeemer. And if you never noticed, I'd like to explain it to you because there is a method to the madness, not because we feel that there's some absolute compulsion, but we feel that there is a good order that the Bible uses that we would like to use as well. God's mercy towards us are great, and they are the great reason and power and motive for a godly life. We love him because he first loved us. And that's why I started reading in our passage in chapter 3, starting in verse 12. It's part of the therefore section of the letter. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, and so forth. Okay. Uh, You know, this is the general gospel presentation that when we are believing Colossians 1 and 2 as the elect of God, that we are to be living according to Colossians 3 and 4. And we are only to live out the Christian life to do our duty in view of God's mercies. So we find this pattern, not just here in Colossians, but Romans 1 through 11 is combined with a therefore in view of God's mercies 12 through the end. Or Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is followed by a therefore in chapter 4 verse 1. And then the instructions for the Christian life come on rapid fire. You might say the difference between Christianity and every other religion is on the order of things. You see, the religions of the world, the philosophies of human life, they reverse the biblical order. They tell us in one way or the other that we are first to live a right life and then we can receive, or the Lord will receive us, or we can receive God's salvation. They tell us that salvation is of works, not for works. That overturns everything. And that's why the order of things and the therefore between them is so important. As Walter Marshall writes, we must first receive and confront, excuse me, we must first receive the comforts of the gospel that we may perform the duties of the law. And therefore, if you notice in the bulletin, there is a, a certain order of things where we get, for example, the sermon and the instruction that we are to hear and heed after we have confessed our sins and received the promise of his grace and praise the Lord Jesus. So uh, there is a, a certain definite order 
even in our worship. As a matter of fact, the, the whole worship service does have a definite biblical order that you may never have put together. Um, not just the order of the gospel in general, but our, it, it, it takes its cue from a number of encounters of God's saints in the Bible, particularly Isaiah, in Isaiah 1 through 6. We, we, we have a, a call to worship as the Lord's word is heard, um, just as Isaiah went before the Lord in his temple and he heard the sanctus, holy, 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 as the angels gave praise to God. That sight of God led to the recognition of who Isaiah was in his sin and his need for forgiveness, which he expressed in a kind of prayer, uh, woe is me, um, following which there was an absolution or assurance of pardon and further a commissioning, um, uh, a, a, a statement uh, that uh, gave him his, his duty as one who has been accepted of the Lord. Here am I, send me, he replies. And uh, yeah, so, so you see uh, this, I mentioned earlier Job, I mentioned earlier Peter, uh, Habakkuk. There, there are a, a number of times when, when people have this experience. This is what it is when they meet with God. They, they have reason for uh, hearing God's praise. They confess immediately their, their sins. They hear his assurance, his reassurance of grace. Uh, they are instructed and commissioned. And so it is just generally speaking that this is the order of, of our worship. So it is that um, as we go over this liturgy every week, we are going over the sacred ground of the gospel and our experience of meeting with the Lord himself according to the pattern that we see on the mount. Uh, Exodus 24 also, by the way, same thing. We not only hear the gospel here, we are in a sense practicing it or experiencing or embracing it for ourselves again and so that the logic of the service is intended to form your spiritual experience according to that of the greatest saints of all time. Um, somebody said the main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing and properly ordered worship offered to God from heart to heart, from, from, from the heart and with the heart is an important means to do just that. Not just elements in general, but this liturgy intended to inscribe it upon your heart uh, to add deep emotion to the purest doctrine in the right order and gospel order and way and to communicate that to the world. Now, many Christians associate the word liturgy with maybe Episcopalian or similar churches. It suggests a very highly structured ritual. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense that every church has a liturgy. I mean, every, I just mean the order of, order of things in a worship service. If a, if a church just gets together and has some praise songs and gives an offering has a prayer and then has a sermon, that, that is a liturgy. And uh, a, a church that, uh, that does so is, is saying something um, in that order, perhaps. Um, Episcopalian churches, Roman Catholic, and uh, other traditions as well often add things which are um, repeated each week, like the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Um, 
uh, forming the basis, by the way, of the ancient catechisms of the church for mind, will, and emotion, what we believe, what we should do, what we should desire, that every week the people hear and learn the basics of the Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed, the will of God in the Ten Commandments, and the passion and desire that we are to have in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I um, uh, just mentioned that such liturgies have a stronger emphasis on certain parts of worship that are not as obviously commanded in the Bible, and I'm hoping that you get these things in other ways, although I recognize the advantage of the church in putting these things into the hearts and minds of the people every week. So, um, also the emphasis that we have from Sunday to Sunday. If there is one, is completely up to us. I try to lean toward the practice of the universal church, though we are under no compulsion from any calendar and seek not to incorporate any um, traditions or observances as anything upon the conscience, simply to choose an appropriate theme if there is one that may match the emphasis of the broader church just as a nod. It doesn't also say which passages of scriptures are to be read every week, but from early days, much of the church decided it would be a very well-balanced service if there were a reading from the Old Testament, a psalm read or sung, uh, a reading from the gospel, and a reading from the epistle, and you probably never noticed, but we do that at minimum every Sunday. Old Testament, psalm, gospel, epistle, every service, morning and evening, that's what we're putting before you, uh, not following the revised common lectionary or anything like that, but uh, it, it was a good idea, and we are seeking to have a balanced presentation before you. Some songs are old, it's true, but there can't be any inherent objection to age. When the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed and met with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper, they closed singing a hymn, or as it is uh, surely one of the, uh, the, 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 the psalms of the Hallel, then as now, sung on every holiday of the Jews, especially Passover uh, with, with meaning. Uh, the disciples on that night of the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn which was already a thousand years old. There can't be anything inherently wrong with age or newness. Uh, our hymnal is now, I guess, a few years old. It was finished in 1990. We have a couple 1990 songs in there. Uh, and some things from the 20s and the 40s and the 80s. But uh, I'm trying to make much of the things that unite us. And even the hymnal seeks to take from every tradition, from every century, the best things of the church to unite us together. So that's the general order. Much beyond anything particular from the passage, I'm trying to give you the lines of why we are doing what we're doing. Uh, third and finally, the, the win. Mm. The church uh, has met morning and evening, um, well, virtually without exception throughout its history in most lands, in most churches. And why was that done? Why, why was that done? Well, first, provision was made uh, way back in the days of Moses that there should be morning and evening sacrifices of the priests and that these things were to be required explicitly on the Sabbath day. Psalm 92 that we sung earlier for the Sabbath day, therefore reads, it's good to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Morning and night was the daily sacrifice of 
praise on the Sabbath. Third, uh, in the New Testament, we have a record of evening worship and, um, well, in, in, in the book of Acts, where it very clearly, clearly intends to set before us the representative life of early Christianity, we, we, we do find them several times at, at worship in the, in the evening. Interestingly, the, the first Sunday service in general after the Lord rose was at night when the Lord uh, met with his people on Sunday evening. Um, I'm not saying it has to be done or that churches are in sin if they don't have an evening service or anything like that. But if you say, well, why is it that the church had it morning and evening? Well, it's been like that since the days of Moses and, well, uh, Psalm 92, the New Testament. um, It is something that is now generally lost, and I think it's I think it is a substantial loss. A 1985 survey of favorite hymns of British churchgoers placed several evening hymns in the top ten, including The Day You Gave Us, Lord, Is Ended, which was the number one favorite hymn of all Anglicans, by the way, was the evening hymn. Or Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Evening Tide, that made number seven. It's painful, I think, to contemplate generations of Christians growing up learning not how to sing these superb hymns because... It's awkward to sing Fast Falls the Evening Tide in the morning. Um, but there are perhaps more important reasons to mourn the loss. Um, there are half as many services of worship in which men and women, boys and girls, might meet the Lord and hear the words of life to instruct and admonish one another. Such a service provides an opportunity to teach the Word of God in more of its fullness. Frankly, I would not be having this sermon on a Sunday morning. This is already kind of a one-off on a Sunday evening. I, I give my own testimony that if it were not for a very well-attended morning service, I would not be taking up more secondary matters in an evening service. I, 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 I would have a hard time justifying a sermon such as this. The evening service provides especially, though, some helpful support for the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, for a a day that is the Lord's, that Christians have always found it to be much easier and more delightful to to keep a day holy to the Lord, making a proper use of its time when it's bookended by morning and evening worship. There is a limited amount of time in the middle of the day to show mercy, to... Isaiah 58, have all the things that make a holy day. Not turning away from your flesh and blood, uh, doing, doing good to others as you have opportunity. The structure of the day uh, is helped and supported by that. We, we don't tell people, you have to come back Sunday night. We don't tell you, you have to come back or you're, or you're in sin. We do tell people, we want you to keep a holy day to the Lord. Make it the market day of your soul and come if you, if you can. In churches where the Christian family is home from church by lunchtime and the remainder of the day stretches out before them with no other marker or occasion to return to worship, the sanctification of the day is much harder to pull off. We are certainly finding that in American evangelicalism. That it's kind of a, well, well, I shouldn't say kind of, let me say it more strongly. It's a recipe for disaster so far as people's concern about their soul is concerned when their entire spiritual life is 
compressed into an hour or an hour and a half on one morning. However, uh, a day of rest, holy to the Lord, uh, full of the joy that the Bible itself commends, that it should be to us a delight, Isaiah 58. It's no small thing. And if we do that, then one-seventh of our lives are, to borrow Moses' phrase, as the days of heaven upon the earth, that our eternal occupation has already begun here below. Well, I realize we're only talking about another hour or two out of the entire week, um, but uh, surely it's a blessing that I know that so many of you appreciate to have not just a day devoted to his worship, but to have it so naturally begin and end in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, with the Lord's word and the Lord's praise. In conclusion, this, uh, this pattern for worship is completely unlike that which is appointed in other religions, and these things should not be taken for granted. God has given a certain shape to our gatherings in order to give a certain shape to your spiritual life. And this gospel-based service week after week is so critical because you cannot hear this week after week. You cannot believe that God has sent his son into the world to suffer the death on the cross that we might be saved in him. You cannot believe that God has lavished his love on such utterly undeserving sinners like you and me and that he has come into our hearts and lives to transform them from the inside out. You say, so you cannot believe all these things and have them set before you and pressed upon you week after week in such a structure, in such a way, and have your life remain the same. That once you know what God has done, what Christ has suffered, what the Holy Spirit has wrought in you, the love and joy and wonder and gratitude and amazement compel you to present your whole bodies and lives as living sacrifices to God in view of his mercies. This is what is intended to be held before you week after week in this way, in this order. Uh, I, I, I give you some things which are essential. I give you some, some things which we hope are wise and are certainly at least of a biblical order. Uh, I certainly uh, don't mean to make any aspersions on churches that have done things in a different but still a biblical way. But I do want to give you some, some tools to be able to evaluate the rapidly changing worship environment in our day, which I, I fear will not make strong Christians in another generation. The worship services for man have left man much weaker. The services primarily oriented around the priests of God coming before the face of God have not only brought greater glory to God, but left men stronger. All right, that is my desire for you. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, we might be a, a blessed priesthood, a holy priesthood, offering such sacrifices to you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. For we once were not even a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. May these mercies, in view of your mercies, therefore, cause us to overflow in joyful work as your priests in your holy service, and to hold forth the word of life in the world as we leave from here to enter in once again to our six days of labor, give meaning and purpose to the rest of the week now that we have sanctified.